mean, I was always having meltdowns, but when I was 29, I was severely triggered, and then I had the mother of all meltdowns that um, really sent me into a medical tailspin. And at that point, I I was terrified I was going to die. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Depression Files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health, topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the show. This is Al Levin, the host of The Depression Files. Really excited uh, today on the line we have Michelle Rosenthal. Michelle is a trauma recovery specialist, an author, and a mental health advocate. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hey, Al. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am super delighted to be here with you. This is such an important topic, and I I am excited to dive in with you. Yeah, it is, it's an incredibly important topic, especially now, I think, with so many people having so much trauma, um, you know, with the pandemic and then all of the politics and mm. the racial uh, equity pieces, all of the racial trauma as well. I mean, here in Minneapolis, we were pretty much the epicenter with the murder of George Floyd from a police officer. So, I mean, the amount of traumas, it, it's incredible. It really is. It's really sad. It is, and and I think that, you know, I was just reading a statistic the other day that 19% of Americans live with mental illness, which was 47 million Americans, and that was before the pandemic began. So you can only imagine what that number is now. And this morning, I was interviewing a woman who works with children and teens, and she was saying how she's just been flooded with with more clients than she can handle right now. And I think that these are evidences of, you know, what's going on with the mental health, not not just in America, but but worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I work in uh, in a public school and I think just in our small building, the number of kids who have dealt with incredible traumas and in this large urban district and St. Paul Public Schools, as well as the staff. And it's, it's a pretty small mm-hmm. staff, but so many have been dealing just the beginning of this short school year so far 
with a lot of trauma. So what an important, important topic. Now, I know um, a lot of times I'll interview people, and, and it's the same with me. Like, it was my depression that got me really interested to learn about depression, and, and eventually I came out with a blog, and, and then this podcast, mm. and learning so much about it. And, you know, I meet social workers and psychologists, and sometimes they're a little hesitant to share their own personal experiences, but I know that there are, there are many who have had their own experiences or or experiences with family members and such that have got them into that work. And it sounds like it's really the same with you. And you went through an incredibly traumatic situation at a very young age. At 13, I think you were? Yes, that's right. At that that weird age (laughs) when, you know, according to um, traditional identity theory, identity, you know this as an educator, really starts to form between 13 and 18. Traditionally is when they said it, it, I think it actually extends longer than that today, but 13 is a very tender age. And and I think then when you experience trauma before then or during those teenage years, it's a real challenge to be able to form an identity that actually survives the trauma rather than being destroyed by it, which is, you know, pretty much what happened to me. So yeah, you're right. It's hard. Childhood trauma is tough. Yeah. The, and, and you're so right. I mean, I work in a pre-K through eight school, so that those middle school years, kids are just trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to fit in. The hormones are going crazy. They're figuring out relationships. They're trying to gain some independence. It's, Mm -hmm. it is a tough, tough time. And your trauma, um, it sounds like it was pretty horrific. Can you uh, walk us through what happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. And um, spoiler alert for any all of your, your listeners, your audience, I'm going to make this as simple and bottom line as it is. It has some uh, some graphic detail, but I will go through it as quickly as possible. Um, I think everybody can handle it. So uh, I was 13 years old. I had a run-of-the-mill infection. A doctor simply just was too busy to read the notes in my chart and prescribe for me a run-of-the-mill antibiotic. Now, in the notes in my chart, the doctor who had been treating me had not disclosed to my family that he thought I was allergic to a specific antibiotic. He hadn't told us that. So when he was on vacation and the covering doctor was caring for me that summer, um, he didn't know. And since he didn't read the chart, he didn't have any indication that what he was prescribing was potentially very dangerous for me. So I took this antibiotic and I ended up with what's called toxic epidermal necrolysis syndrome or TENS, which is just a fancy way of saying that with that allergy, the my body could not metabolize the antibiotic. And so to get rid of it, it just expanded breast expelled it through the skin, which basically turned me into a full body burn victim. Uh, Head to toe, I lost the first couple of layers of skin. I was in a quarantine burn unit in um, actually in New York City, which is where I was living at the time. And um, at the end of that experience, now today, 
this is back in 1981. So I was 13. I'm 53 now. And in 1981, they didn't even know what was happening to me. It took them a week before one dermatologist came on the case and said, you know, I think I read something about this in a journal once. So there was no protocol for caring for someone. There's no way to stop what's happening. The body just does its own thing. And today, this happens to one in two million people. Today, they boom, immediately they put you into a coma until it's over. And I think that's probably preferable because you don't actually have the experience of being awake for your skin just comes off in sheets and then you're just this big raw wound. And at that time, because I was awake, it was terrifying. I had great parents, but they didn't know how to help me or keep me safe. I had a medical team that had never seen this before, so they didn't know what to do. And, and it was terrifying to be trapped in a body that was so out of control. And, and then I also, TENS has a high, a high mortality rate. I had a near-death experience. And then, I mean, you can imagine what that's like as a 13-year-old. If you think of yourself, Al, or anyone that you know, what kind of coping skills do we have at 13? It's like hard enough just to be on the school bus and have someone not be nice to you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I, so I had no coping skills for the pain or the fear or the terror or being trapped in a body that was doing something nobody understood. And I definitely had no coping skills for a near-death experience. So when I came out of the hospital, I knew I was going to make a full physical recovery. I have scars, but it's not anything that would... Um, it didn't disfigure me. I mean, if you look at me, I don't look like a burn victim because it's not, it's a chemical burn versus a, a fire burn. Okay. And um, so I got very lucky. I, my parents were amazing. So they, they took as good care of me as they could. So even the scars that I have, it, it's not something that would interfere with a life physically. But e- even, even, and, even, yeah. I'm sorry, but even early on, were there physical scars when you went back yes. to school? Yes, but not where anybody would see them. Okay. Because they were on my arms, they were on my legs, they were on my wrist. My parents were incredible, absolutely incredible. And I, I don't know how they did what they did. I've worked with survivors of tens. I've been in touch with other survivors. They they do have scarring on their face. Um, some of them, um, be, and mostly because the skin comes off, but then if, if, if pieces of the skin come off sooner than other pieces, it creates discoloration. And and that's what I had on my arms, my legs, my wrists, that kind of stuff. My face, my parents, um, my, I mean, this is off topic Al, but like this, the short, the short version is that they, you know, even your corneas, I was blind for a while because the corneas blistered oh up goodness. everything. It was just being a big blister from head to toe. And, um, so for a while they were putting things in my eyes to try to, to save my eyes, which they did. And I was very fortunate, but they, my dad figured out that like what they were putting on my eyes was actually really good for the skin on my face. Okay. So he went and bought up like 200 tubes of this stuff and they just slathered it all over my face. Wow. So, you know, the creativity of what can happen when you have no protocol is, right. is uh, interesting. Was, so was, my face looks great. Was, uh, was the pain 
just incredibly excruciating. I know you're you're comparing it to a burn victim. I've always heard burn victims go through incredible amounts of pain, and it sounds like it's just horrifically painful what you went through. Horrifically painful. I mean, I don't know how graphic you want me to be, Al. I'll, I'll leave that up to you. But um, horrifically painful. If you think about, um, I need some guidance from you because I, I don't want to trigger anybody or uh, really go into a place that's not right. So, uh, you know, I think it's your story to share. And as much as you want to share, I think it's important for people to have a sense of what you went through. And at the same time, I understand if you don't want to share and my, these episodes are marked explicit and okay. uh, my page does have a warning, a trigger warning, okay. and we've certainly given warning on this episode. So, um, all right, Al, <laughs> we're on the high dive. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. So if you've ever thought about if you've been walking along and your shoe rubs you in the wrong way and you end up with a little blister because yeah. you were, were not wearing socks, right? Yeah. yeah. Have you ever thought about like how painful that little blister is? Like something touches that raw skin and it just hurts, right? Yeah, it's just absolutely. uncomfortable. So you'd rather walk barefoot than put that shoe back on. Right. So take that <laughs> and then rip all the rest of the skin off your foot and then try to walk. Oh it's my gosh. excruciating, but that would just even be the first layer. But this tens takes you down two layers of skin. So you're beyond raw and it, you know, not everybody, I, I was covered head to toe, but it's not like that for everyone. Some people are just 50% of their body, but it starts out with little blisters everywhere. And then the little blisters join together until I had a blister that went literally from my neck to my belly button. Wow. All the way, on, all the way to the sides of my, of my rib cage. It was just all one big blister, like three inches high, filled with fluid, and then that comes off all at once, oh and you God. are just down two layers of skin. Wow. So if you think about that from head to toe, inside and out, in your eye, it's everywhere. So um, pain, I wouldn't, I don't even know that you could call it pain. It's beyond pain. Right. It's beyond excruciating unless you actually – Blade yourself. Right. I think it would be hard to even start to understand what it would be like to be like that head to toe. And at and this time, they, the first week or or so, I think you had said they didn't even know what was going on. No, they didn't. So they they're didn't. just trying I mean, to to ease your pain. Are they giving you morphine? Like, do you do you remember or have you been told what how they were managing the situation? Yeah, we started with Demerol. And then um, that wasn't enough, so they added morphine. And then um, my parents, my my dad, my mom managed everything inside the room. My father managed everything outside the room. So, for example, um, I went into the pediatrics unit, but then they realized very quickly this is a burn case. But they wanted to move me to the burn unit with all the adults who'd been burned by fire. And my mother went to take a look, and she came back. She said, we're not moving her there flat out we're not moving my daughter into that unit because people were screaming and it was awful and she said no we're going to stay right here and we're going to turn this into a burn unit so um so my mom was super cool in that way and they, awesome. they brought in a 
burn unit team. They quarantined my room. And um, so inside that room. What? Incredible advocates, your mom and dad. Oh, my God. They were amazing. And think about them. The trauma they were going through. Exactly. You've got four children. To see your child in excruciating pain and there's nothing you can do. And and you don't even know why. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I can't imagine that. Uh, You know, what I do hear about some, it makes me think of those people who have lived through some really, really scary times that just say, I was running on adrenaline the whole time. You know, I would imagine your parents were just doing what they, whatever they could, you know, like. Absolutely. And And I think they both got locked on to, I need to stay in motion. What am I going to do? So my mother started interviewing burn unit nurses. My father tracked down, it was Labor Day weekend. Everything was closed. And my father was determined to get a burn unit bed delivered to the pediatrics unit because uh, it, you know, it's impossible to lie on a blister. So if you're head to toe covered in blisters, there's too much weight that you're putting. There's nowhere to let, there's nowhere to lie. Right. 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 Without being in excruciating pain. Cause if you've ever had blisters, for example, on the bottom of your feet, if you try to walk that fluid, it ha- it's trapped. It has nowhere to go. It just is painful. So, um, so there's, you want to burn, victim in a burn bed because it makes you weightless and so then there's no pressure on on any of the skin and um so my dad was like i'm gonna track this down there was one bed in new jersey it was labor day he was gonna get it there despite the holiday and my (laughs) mother's bringing in all these nurses and so i think that's how they managed and i and i think you're right the adrenaline and the let's just keep solving problems Right. Because that was what they could do while I was screaming my head off. You ask what they were managing the pain. There was nothing that stopped the pain. They went from Demerol to morphine. And Al, I've written a whole book about trauma and recovery. It's, you know, I've written three books, but my first one was all about trauma and recovery. My personal memoir of going through this and then coming out the other side and triumphing over all of it. But there is a chapter in that book um, all about the pain (laughs) (laughs) because it was just, it was just one endless scream because I, there was no way for me to contain the pain that I was in. And I think back now of how hard that must've been for my parents for me to just be screaming and screaming and screaming. And I would imagine you couldn't even sleep. No. Oh no. No. I became a horrible insomniac after this. Right. Yeah. Oh my yeah, goodness. Yeah, that's true for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad I didn't let you quite breeze through it because that gives us a lot more of a sense of just how traumatic this was and and the pain you went through as a 13-year-old. Yeah. That's yeah. that's incredible. And and the I can't imagine the fear of not knowing what's going on especially. You know, I know as a parent that's scary as can be too right like Mm. not knowing what is happening and to see such a horrific scene and to have no idea why it's happening that's right and I think that to build on what you're saying Al is you don't know how much worse it's going to get right so every day you would think well okay, so it's a bunch of little blisters. How bad can that be? And then the next day the blisters get bigger and you say, well, 
that we can handle this. And the next day they get bigger. Well, we can handle this. The next day they, those blisters start to join together. And the next thing you know, it's not something you can handle. And now you start to get afraid each day of what's coming that you don't know. Can right. we handle this? Right. right? Um, and it was also a teaching hospital. So that added a whole other layer to it because there were rounds all day of people coming to see the freak. And that that added a whole other layer to my experience because now I'm I'm naked, right? I'm lying in a bed and people are coming all day to come look at what's happening to this patient and wow. for them it's fascinating and they're taking all these pictures and you know for me it was like how many pictures are you going to take and how awful is it and how many people are going to come stare at me and it, it added a whole other voyeuristic kind of level to a very private intense experience right. um so that 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 also was not very comfortable wow. and i'm not sure that that was you know eventually i finally I finally said to my mother, I can't handle, I can't handle all of these people. And that was when my father decided he was going to stand outside the room and no one was coming in. <laughs> well, I was going to say, just, just from the short bit you've told us about your parents, I bet your dad took care of that. <laughs> he did. He was like, that's it. That's it. <laughs> wow. Oh my so. goodness. You know, the other uh, question I have is how quickly after taking an antibiotic did this come on? And then how quickly did it all finally dissipate and end? Well, and it's interesting. And since you're an educator and for, for the, the other educators and, and people in your community, so let's talk about this TENS. People may be more familiar with Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which covers 10% or less of the body in little blisters, a rash, um, TENS is, is much more aggressive and it can happen from anything. I mean, I took a sulfa-based antibiotic that we all know and love, Septra, which is also like Bactrim. And that's how I ended up. But there's a, there's a girl who was 11 that took a Tylenol. She, she actually went to, to trial with her case and got, you know, over $20 million because of there being nothing on the label that let anybody know this could happen. So this can come from ibuprofen. It's not just related to the one thing I took. It's just a body that cannot metabolize this. And and to be honest with you, Al, to, to get back to your, your question, I'll back us up a year earlier. I took the same antibiotic. I had a UTI both times. I took the same antibiotic the year before. And I ended up, I had a rash, I had a headache, general malaise, I didn't feel good. And the doctor told my parents, I think it's just echovirus. But in the chart, he wrote, potentially adverse re reaction to Septra. Wow. But he didn't tell my parents that. That seems so negligent. Yeah. And then the next year, the covering doctor, because my doctor was on vacation, didn't read the chart. Right. So... To answer your question directly then, I started the SEPTRA and within 48 to 72 hours, I didn't feel good. I did not have a rash, but I had, uh, I had migraine headaches. My eyes were very sensitive to light and I was itching head to toe. 
I did not have a rash right away. I just was incredibly itchy. So it, so this went on for a week. My mother took me to the back to the doctor and he said, I don't know what it is. She took me to an allergist. He said, I can't see anything. There's no way for me to know what it is. And she took me to an eye doctor because I kept complaining that the light hurts my eyes. He said that I can't see anything. I don't know what this is. And to every single one of them, my mother said, do you think this could be related to the antibiotic she's taking? She just, she started this antibiotic three days ago, two days ago, five days ago. And this is what's been happening ever since. And every single one of them said, no, you're being a Jewish mother. Stop it. Just let her go home and go to sleep and this will pass. It's probably just a virus. So to answer your question, it took a full week before blisters started to appear on my lips. And I remember it was like a Saturday night. We were all at home. We were sitting down to watch, I don't know, some Sunday night television, Saturday night television show, the four of us, me, my parents, my little brother, who's three years younger. And, um, and I remember these little blisters on my lips. And the next day, my parents called the physician and said, you need to meet us at the office. Something's not right. And we had this meeting with him, and I remember him. We were in this mahogany and oak office, you know, with these big bookcases and this mammoth desk. And he looked at me. He looked at everything, and then he looked at my parents, and he said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what this is, so you can either go home and see what happens, or you can go to the hospital and be there and see what happens. And Al, I remember everyone, my parents and the doctor looking at me and saying, what do you want to do? Oh my goodness, at 13. At 13, and I remember that was the moment that I started to be really afraid because if none of the adults and if my parents didn't know and the doctor didn't know, now I'm starting to really be, it occurred to me, I should probably be really frightened right now. (laughs) And I remember thinking, if all of these people don't know what to do, we need to go to the hospital because we don't know what's coming and we need more people. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So, um, so we did, we left his office and, um, went home, packed up. One of my mom's friends came and got my brother and my parents took me to the hospital. It was a good thing because the next day was not a good day. Those blisters were just the beginning of, of my whole body breaking out that way. Um, within 48 hours, I couldn't even get out of the bed. I couldn't stand. My feet were covered in blisters. I couldn't lie down. It was, uh, it was pretty quick. So that was the first week was me just at home with all these symptoms. Nobody could understand. The second week was me in the hospital with getting worse and worse with nobody knowing what it was. Wow. And, um, so it took two weeks to really have a diagnosis. And then three weeks after that, before, um, before things started to get better. And once they figured it out, what's the protocol then? Was there a different medication they gave you or was it kind of a wait and see and manage pain? That, that the latter, because they didn't have a protocol, you know, that's like now they put you immediately into a propofol coma, propanolol or propofol. I think it's propofol, um, coma. They just, and they wrap you. Um, okay. they wrap you like a mummy. Right. It's really interesting. Um, and, and I think I, I definitely, it's, 
it's, you know, it's interesting, Alan. You can tell me what you think. I've thought about this since I keep up with the science of this illness. I work with uh, with survivors of this illness uh, as my clients now, and so I'm always looking at, you know, how did what's the protocol now? And um, the interesting thing is, I now I wonder what's better. Is it better to go into a coma immediately and so you come out and you have no idea what you've been through and then there's like this gap of time? Or is it better to be awake like I was but you're completely traumatized by what happened that whole time? Yeah. I, so I don't know. What's I, your thought? Well, you know, this is just a guess. I'm not a doctor and I haven't been through such a traumatic experience. But I would think if you could be sedated or put into a coma – to not have that incredible amount of pain and watching what was happening to your skin and mm-hmm. so forth, that, that the coma would be best. And if you could wake up then essentially pain-free mm-hmm. and people could just explain to you what had happened. And I don't know if they wait until you're on the healing end of things, but that just, it, it would be strange, right? You have a gap, like you said, of, four days a week, maybe two weeks, I don't know, of time where where you were just out of it. And, and that would be strange, right? But I don't, I don't know if it would be nearly as traumatic as what you went through. I think that's probably true. Yeah. I think that's true. Because then you also don't have, you know, um, before, before I was bedridden, uh, the last thing that I did was, was walk from, you know, before my feet became too, too blistered. Uh, I walked from my bed to, to the bathroom and of course there's a mirror there. Right. And so, uh, so I was able to see what was happening to my face and, uh, it was one of the things that, that really terrified me because my face was not my face right. and it was, it was creepy and crazy looking and, and, it was awful. And, and I was so traumatized by that, that they covered the mirror after that because it was just better for me not to be able to see what was happening. So I think you're right. I think it's probably better. Uh, I think managing the gap of time is probably easier than managing the trauma of the experience. Right. In fact, don't they say that sometimes our, our body and our minds do that naturally where mm. sometimes people have a gap of time that they don't recall from a traumatic incident, like an accident yes. and stuff. Very um, true. Wow. So how about the healing process? Like when you got out of the hospital, were you essentially 100% and, and no. good to go uh, physically? No, no, I wasn't. I had, uh, I had lost 30 pounds in the hospital and I didn't weigh enough to go back to school. So I missed, um, I missed two or three months of school. And so this happened at the very end of summer vacation and I didn't go back to school. So, so I was in the hospital for September and then I was home for October and half of November. I went back just before Thanksgiving, I think. Okay. Um, so I stayed at home so my mother could fatten me up. <laughs> Were you still in pain from the injuries? Um, uh, I was very weak and dizzy a lot. Yeah. And, um, and, but my skin was healing. Okay. So uh, they actually didn't let me out of the hospital until my skin was, um, 
on the mend. Right. It's so no more blisters really. It yeah. was more like, um, just pieces of skin that had gotten stuck that needed to come off. Um, you know, debriding like they do with, with burn victims, the skin needed to be debrided. So I stayed in the hospital until that was complete. And so when I came home, the, my skin was comfortable, but very sensitive, you okay. know, like overly sensitive to touch or fabric and all that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Um, the bigger problem at that point was just how emaciated I had become because I, I couldn't eat or anything during all that time. So, um, so just had, because of the pain, the amount of pain you were in. Well, Al, my whole mouth was blistered. Okay, so my the lips, inside, my too. tongue, my okay. cheeks, everything, wow. my gums. There was oh not goodness. a there was not a an inch of me that was not blistered. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, wow. Yeah, so I hadn't eaten, and uh, well, and when I say that I hadn't eaten like a normal person, they had wanted to put a feeding tube in, but my mom didn't want them to do that. First of all, it would be painful because there were blisters everywhere. And second of all, my mom was very, my mom actually is an educator. She's, uh, she teach, she taught, she's retired now. She taught, um, first grade, uh, second grade and sixth grade. Okay. So yeah, so she's very tuned in to child psychology and so she was constantly advocating for my psychological well-being throughout awesome. the whole experience. Yeah. That's really so awesome. A- I mean, I meet yeah. a lot of, you know, just through this podcast and so forth and, and my men's group and everything else, I mm. meet plenty of people who are, you know, our age. I'm a similar mm-hmm. age. I'm 52. And um, who say, you know. It was when I was a kid. My parents didn't know about mental health at all. You know, nobody really talked uh, about it. So it's awesome that your mom was tuned into that and knew, like, we're going to have to do something about the psychological aspect. Well, if she were in the on the on this podcast with us, she would be shaking her head and saying, "Al, it didn't help," right? Because she didn't know what she didn't know. Mm-hmm. Right. She knew like, like she would tell you the story of one night there was a chaplain in the hall on the pediatric floor. And she was in a moment of just being overcome with emotion. She was, my dad had come into the room so she could take a break and go out of my room. And she was in the hallway crying and um, this chaplain came up to her and, and said, I've looked at your daughter's chart. She's going to make it. So what? why are you crying? What's the matter? And my mom said she's never going to be the same. There's no way that anyone could come through this. No child could come through this and be the same. And And she was right. But she didn't know. Like There was no trauma-informed psychological approach in 1981. So before I left the hospital, the day before I was released, she, she got a psychiatrist to come speak to me in my hospital room. And Al, I'm sure you know about trauma, but you know, we have three aspects in the triune model of the brain advocated by Dr. McLean, which simplifies everything, but I like it for the simplification. So you have the reptilian brain, our oldest brain. There's no language there. It's just your survival mode. You have the 
middle brain where your limbic response is. No language there. It's just your emotions. And then you have the neomammalian brain, you know, your neocortex. That's where your language is. And that's the part of your brain that shuts off during trauma. So it's very common for trauma survivors not to have language to express how they feel. Not to mention the fact that trauma impacts and interrupts and disables the language center of the brain directly. So by the time I was ready to be released from the hospital, I could not speak about what had happened to me. I was terrified that if I tried to talk about it, I would, I would be overwhelmed by the feelings, uh, completely shattered by the emotions. And the image that I had in my head was, if I have to talk about this, I'm going to be put in a straitjacket and into a padded room where I'm just going to bang my head against the wall until the day I die. And so I was very terrified to talk about it. And so the, the, the psychiatrist came in what does she want to do? She wants to talk about it. <laughs> and right. I remember, you know, in a, in a hospital room, there's a TV up in the corner of the room and it was, it must've been 3 PM. Cause that's when Tom and Jerry was on. <laughs> and I watched that Tom and Jerry cartoon for the whole 45 minutes that she was there. I refused to speak to her and she stopped talking. We watched the TV in silence together. So my mom was right. I needed help. But I didn't get trauma-informed help because, like, I think about it now when I have people who come into my office because their family wants them to get help, but they don't want to be there and they don't want to talk about it. Um, number one, I, I have certified therapy dogs that I've trained to work with me, which makes talking way easier. I have veterans who come in, they're like, I don't want to talk at all. I say, fine. And the next thing you know, they're snuggling the dog and telling their whole story, <laughs> right. which I don't believe is necessary for recovery. Um, but it, it can be a useful part of the process. But what I always do when someone comes in and doesn't want to talk and I learned this that day when I was 13 and that psychiatrist sat there you know I'm the survivor I shouldn't have to talk if I don't want to don't make me talk if I'm not ready but why don't you talk to me why don't you tell me what trauma is? Why don't you tell me how trauma affects a mind, a body, a heart, a soul? Why don't you tell me what can happen afterward in terms of my mood, avoidance, re-experiencing, hyperarousal? Why don't you talk to me and educate me and normalize this experience? I don't need to talk when I've just been tra traumatized. I need to be educated. And I wonder how things would have been different if somebody had educated my parents or educated me about trauma, because the next 30 years would have been potentially very different for all of us. But because I didn't understand trauma and they didn't understand trauma, I immediately started to hide my trauma symptoms. And my mother kept trying to force me to go to talk therapy because that's the only thing she knew mm -hmm. until I raged so much that I shut down everybody around me because it became clear that trying to force me to get help was just exacerbating the problem. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I share that because my mom was right on it, but she didn't have all the tools that, that really would have helped. And I like to 
share that because I think it's really important for everyone listening. I think trauma education and trauma informedness is probably the most essential aspect of post-trauma care. And the more we all understand what that means and how to deliver it, the less depression there will be. Right. Because we can start helping people before that depression begins. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I think, uh, and it makes a lot of sense to me. When, when I was in my three-week partial hospitalization program for depression, for major depression, I started to learn a lot about what it means to be depressed and to go through mm. depression. And I think that education helped me immensely. Yeah, well, just to that point. So I used to have my own podcast about trauma for several years, and I interviewed um, a, a, a psychologist who had worked um, – with 9-11 survivors in 2001, like right after. It was like immediate care. And and he was telling me about a study that had de- been done during that time where they took survivor, they divided the group of survivors into two and group A got individual talk therapy as their intervention and group B got trauma-informed education as a group. Which group had, which group would you guess ended up with PTSD? Not the educated group, the talk That's therapy right. group. That's right. Yeah. Because you separate everybody. They're all in there. Like we all think we're so like unique in our trauma, right? And we are because only we survived it. But what we experience is universal. You know, the the terror, the pain, the sadness, the grief, the loss, all, all of that is universal. But right. when we're alone in talk therapy, we don't know that. We don't have a sense of that. And I always thought that that study was so interesting because it, it shows the importance of education and community. Yes. I mean, it makes me think of a couple things. One is uh, I'm a, a real strong advocate around support groups. Mm. And support groups give you that sense as well, right? Like, I'm not the only one who is having these symptoms, even though, and I haven't been to a support group for trauma, but I certainly have been for depression. And for Mm. me, it was a sense right away of, wow, these are guys who have been there. They understand. And it's instant connection. And I would imagine for trauma victims, too, where you, you mentioned, like, everybody's trauma is very different, but... They go through similar path of recovery or the the symptoms of the trauma, and to be able to understand, like I'm not alone. This is, uh, others are going through this. There's something mm. about that 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 really I think helps to foster that recovery and the hope. I absolutely agree, and it's funny you should say that because many, many, many years later, when I was in my late 30s and really working hard, it took me 24 years to get a PTSD diagnosis, and wow. uh, and then once I I had a name for what was wrong for many years, I just kept thinking I was crazy, and so I and I sort of like embrace that. I, I, I'm an artist. I'm a poet, a playwright, you know, I've, I'm an author. So like, I, I was always like, well, I'm an artist. Some of the greatest artists <laughs> have been crazy. So I'll just right. be as good crazy as I can be. Um, it, but, but then later when I finally 
had a name for what was wrong and I realized, oh, I'm not crazy. There's a real issue here. I started looking for, give me a support group. I found a, 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 um, a trauma therapist and she said to me, I think you would really benefit from a group. And I said, okay, I couldn't find one. This was like early 2000s. There were no PTSD support groups. There were no trauma support groups. I went, I looked all over locally in my county, in my state, I called the state capital, like, where are the programs, <laughs> you know, wow. like, I got to find some resources. And you know what they told me everywhere I called, go to the support groups for the substance abuse survivors. Oh You'll goodness. feel at home there. And I, and I kept telling everyone, but I'm not a substance abuse person. I don't have addiction. I, I'm just, I have PTSD. Right. Right. And I, and so I never found a group later. That is exactly why I launched virtual and in-person groups, because how can you not have support groups for yeah. people who just are dealing with trauma and PTSD? Right. I totally agree with you. It makes a big difference. That's awesome. That's really cool that like you can't find one. I'm going to make one. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so uh, the other question that came up in my mind was how do you define trauma because I think what is traumatic well first I want to say 24 years for you to get a diagnosis that's ridiculous like anybody who knows what you went through you would think they would say right away how to what a horrific traumatic experience you must have trauma you must have PTSD so there are some things where in my mind it's like oh that is trauma no matter what but then there are some things that can be hugely traumatic for one person and maybe it's not at all for another. And I think of, and maybe this, I don't want to diminish how traumatic trauma can be, but I think of even a kid whose parents are going through divorce could be really traumatic for them. But there might be another kid who's like, well, thank God, because they've been fighting and fighting mm. forever. And this is such a relief. And mm. now we can all get along. So it seems to me that some things could be traumatic for some people and it may not be traumatic for others. So what do you have to say about that and how do you define trauma? Well, that's a, that's a great, great question. And I like the two parts and let's take the second part first. So, hmm, originally I really, I ascribed to the perspective that trauma is a life threatening, life altering experience. That was in the beginning when I first came into this field around 2007, 2008. Well, and that was probably partly based on your experience with trauma. I would it imagine. was, it was, and it was also the DSM four okay. and its description of PTSD. Gotcha. You know, you, it, it required a life threatening experience to your own, like, physical or emotional well-being. Right. The DSM-5 really blew that wide open and and changed things dramatically. But um, so in the beginning, I really thought, okay, that's what it is. And you're right. It had a lot to do with my experience and, and then what I was reading in the literature. Um, but then I had this very interesting interview with Judy Crane on my podcast, who is um, an LMHC. She's also the founder of the Refuge, a healing place, which is a trauma-focused healing center, actually here in Florida, in Central Florida. And she said to me, 
and it's stuck with me. And I've, I've, I've started every definition of trauma from this place ever since. She said to me, Michelle, the baseline definition of trauma is any experience that feels less than good. Wow. Wow. When you think about that, we're all trauma survivors. <laughs> right, they were right. born, right? <laughs> Um, and I really like that because it sort of levels the playing field. Any experience that feels less than good, now we're all the same. And yeah. then we can start to distinguish between big T and little t trauma. So little t trauma are those daily stressors where things don't go your way. And it's an experience that feels way less than good. Like maybe you didn't get the promotion that you wanted. Or maybe your your spouse was not nice that morning or whatever it is. Those little t traumas that do not change your life or yourself in any way, shape, or form. But they don't feel good. It's a right. big disappointment. Or it's a hurt. So that's little T trauma. And then big T trauma are those big life altering experiences where you are not the same afterward. Right. And you're right. Then like, to, to your point, I, I worked with a, a couple who had been in a car accident, flipped over. I mean, it was horrible. The car was demolished. They walked away okay, thankfully. She was just so glad to be alive. She jumped back in the car, you know, not that car, but another car the next day. And he would not would not flat out would not get into a, a motor vehicle right that was it for him so same trauma same experience but you can't even say that that's just like semantically that doesn't even work because in his mind it was a very different experience than in her mind right so i think that speaks to your point right yeah absolutely that's a perfect example right where the exact same situation yet one comes away thinking that wasn't so true. Like, yeah, it was scary or whatever, but it didn't alter their life. She got back in the car and the mm -hmm. other person in the car was like, no way. Uh, that was really traumatic for me. So, um, and I, yeah, so I just, I think about that often, um, how the trauma, what may be trauma for one person may not be trauma for the other. But I think when you get to the big T, as you put it, those are the things where I'm just like, that's got to be traumatic, and I hope that they're going to look for support, right? You, like yeah. your situation, for example, right? Or somebody gets, I mean, there are plenty of scenarios we could go through that, that are clearly a big T where anybody looking from the outside would be like, oh, my gosh, that is traumatic. Mm -hmm. And you know what, Al? I, I would even maybe back it up a little bit because – who are we to judge what's traumatic from one person to another? You know, I literally had a rape victim or and not that I don't like to say that. that that's how she described herself. But I like to say a rape survivor. Um, so she sat in my office and she said to me, I know I don't really have trauma or PTSD because I just was raped. It's not like I was on the front lines of Afghanistan. And. I, I am always quick to jump in and say, let's not compare our traumas <laughs> because like, there's no way to do that. It's different situations, different scenarios, but just as bad, right? Because if, if it's a horrifically traumatic experience for you, that's all that matters. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's all that matters. Absolutely. It's funny that, that you mentioned this because... Um, not to plug my own work, but I just recently published a blog post on my blog that that the title is Others Have It Worse, 
right? People mm. diminish the depression they're going through because others have it worse. Or yeah. same with the traumatic trauma, right? right? Like, right. yeah, but I wasn't in Afghanistan, so. But, right. but why diminish what you went through, which was traumatic for you? And like you said, why start comparing? It, it makes no difference. And it's silly to think like, Somebody else's trauma is worse. Everybody can always find somebody whose trauma is worse than theirs, no matter what. Essentially, right. that's right. And you know what? You know, maybe maybe on the front lines of Afghanistan, you've chosen to be there. You're trained to be there, and you feel you're on a mission while you're there. And so, what what happens while you're there is horrible, and yet you have a purpose. And maybe that makes maybe that I don't, I don't know because I've worked with veterans who've come back and the, the PTSD is, is real, right? It's grip, it's gripping. Oh, yeah. So, um, but I don't know if that's different, uh, or in what way that's different than a rape survivor who's caught off guard and overpowered and whose body is violated in a moment where she had no mission, she had no purpose, she had no choice. Right. Um, right. So, so I, I don't even know how we begin to compare our traumas. It doesn't make sense to me right. because there are so many variables in each one. I think they're all equal. Yeah. Um, especially in their deleterious effects. Right. And, um, and I think you're right that one of the problems is that we don't talk about this stuff enough so that people really are, are willing to say, you know what, my trauma was really bad. And all this time I didn't think it rated enough on a scale to be viable, you know? Right. And, and I think that's an important message to send. You mentioned earlier it took so long for me to get diagnosed. In 1981, PTSD was only one year old as a diagnostic oh, right. you know, criteria, and it was only being applied to Vietnam veterans, not civilian kids with medical trauma. Right. right. And then – I went to a slew of mental health professionals because my mom made me and then I ended up with an eating disorder. So that started like a whole other round of specialists and stuff. Um, and then I ended up in talk therapy for five and a half years with a guy who never like put two and two together. So it took a long time and a lot of different practitioners that assessed me and it never occurred to any of them to say, do you have trauma in your background? <laughs> Like, wow. You know, let's, let's, you know what happened, Al? And this, this is so important, I think, because when we're depressed, we forget to advocate for ourselves. And so my depression, and let's just be clear, I was, you know, at the suicidal ideation end of depression at certain times. And even then, there was like this little voice in me that realized I was all on my own that I wasn't getting the kind of help that I needed. And so if I was going to live, I was going to need to do something. And one of the things that I did was start researching. Uh, I, you know, and I think anyone can do this. You, you can start researching depression. You can start researching whatever caused your depression. Like for me, I started researching tens because I, I wanted to understand what the heck happened to me. And how did it happen? And how was there no way to stop it? And, and all that. And that research led me, actually, researching TENS led me to trauma 
research. And that trauma research led me to dissociation research. And suddenly I understood how I'd been living for the past 24 years, right? Wow. It was so long that I'd been living dissociated. I thought everybody lived like that. How did and that feel when you made that connection? Um, uh, it, it did not feel as good as when I finally got my PTSD diagnosis because it explained there was a, it, it gave me context, but it didn't give me a solution. Right. Right. Because I'd been in talk therapy for years telling my therapist, you're looking at me, you're, you're looking at this body. And then I would like hold up my hand, stretch out my right arm all the way to the right side. And I'd point at my right hand and I'd say, but I'm out here. I'm over here. I'm not in the body that you're looking at. Right. And my therapist never said to me, oh, that's classic dissociation. That's totally normal for PTSD. Right. You had trauma. Like, that's normal. He never said that. So I just kept thinking I was crazy. Wow. So all of this research that I started to do led me from, you know, I went from tens to trauma to dissociation. The dissociation research led me to PTSD. PTSD research led me to a PTSD self-test that is based on the on 22 questions based on the DSM criteria. And I took that test. And I answered positively to 20 of the 22 questions. Wow. I know, right? But I didn't know what that meant. So I took it to my therapist and I said, you know, do you think maybe this is part of my problem? And I showed him. And I'm not kidding, Al. He's, I said to him, do you think I have PTSD? And he looked at me and said, what is PTSD? Oh, my goodness. And all of a sudden... It was like the sun started to shine in my mind, and I realized, ah, I need better help. <laughs> I was just going to say, I thought you were <laughs> going to say, I need a different therapist. Yeah. Like, right. I had wow. done enough of my own research at that point to realize he does not understand trauma yeah, at the level that I need somebody to. It's amazing how much self-advocacy and education you had to do for yourself, and what a shame when... Like you said, you lived with this trauma without treating it at all, really, for 20, 20, 20 years. Yeah, exactly. 24 years. The, yeah, 24 years to get diagnosed. But that wow. was, um, uh, when did I start treating? I finally, so 13 was the time of my trauma. When I was 29, I had a pretty, you know, I was always having meltdowns. But when I was 29, I was severely triggered and then I had the mother of all meltdowns and that it was a, a mental emotional and physical meltdown that um, really sent me into a medical tailspin and at that point I I was terrified I was going to die what and, was that meltdown like um, well, I didn't know the word trigger back then, but I was constantly having these sinus infections. You know, it's funny how the body, <laughs> it's funny how the body mirrors the mind, right? So I had, it, it's so interesting. Uh, let me back this up to, to tell you the, the interesting way this really all plays out. So in and I didn't know this back then, but just it's interesting and ironic right now. 
So trauma psychology and the theory of trauma psychology started in the late 1800s, 1880, with um, Charcot and Genet. And Genet wrote about, Pierre Genet wrote about trauma and and so did Charcot. And Charcot has this great um, quote that trauma, unresolved trauma, is like parasites of the mind. And I always love that because it's it really speaks to like how the mind can become infected with this parasitic environment that's just draining the mind of everything it's got. And um, so year after year, I was constantly having these these sinus infections. And of course, it meant you had to take an antibiotic, right? So here I am, a girl who nearly died and, you know, dealing with this unresolved NDE and that whole trauma of that whole experience, taking an antibiotic was not comfortable for me. So I would go into these medical meetings about these sinus infections, these infections in my head <laughs> that, that, that really is, was so much like the infection that really psychologically was going on. And I went into this doctor's uh, appointment with a new doctor and I said to him, look, I know I have to take an antibiotic. I, my body's really sensitive. I was just wound tighter than a tick and terrified to have to take an antibiotic. And I kept getting more and more anxious until he finally said, just stop talking already. I don't want to hear it. You're going to be fine. And he, and he said, just take this. And he gave me a prescription and, um, and I just, you know, cringed and got smaller inside myself and I took it and I, I went and I filled the prescription and I took the prescription and it decimated me. Yeah, my body just was not okay on it. Um, not anything like my original trauma. But it really incapacitated me, and uh, and I was even sicker than I had been to begin with. And I know now, holy cow, that triggered a lot, right? It triggered a doctor who didn't take care. It triggered an antibiotic that really cr- just created havoc in my body. It was just another moment of victimhood. Oh, and yeah. and after that, my body just shut down. I I couldn't. I literally could not eat anything. My body would not allow anything in any I could I had no appetite but even if I tried to force it it would come right back up or it would run right through me there was nothing that I could eat and when you think about how interesting the mind is right it creates depression I think for a reason and and I think what the mind does with the body is for a reason right it's everything's about survival mode so um, so you asked the medical issues came after that antibiotic, my body just shut down my liver, my stomach, my intestines, uh, everything. My lab results were just cockeyed and cross-eyed every which way from Sunday and nobody could figure out what was wrong. I went from specialist to specialist all over New York city. And what the reason I was started to tell you this is what finally got me into therapy to start healing was not my trauma. It was my terror that I I was down to 100 pounds and going lower and not a single, every doctor, the top doctors in New York City were telling me, I can't help you. So now I'm going from doctor to doctor to doctor, famous doctors, that if I told you who they were, you would say, oh, yeah, I know him, New York Times bestselling doctors. And they're all assessing me and saying, I can't help you. 
And now it's like my original trauma maxed out, right? Like there's not a doctor in the city who can help me. I have some mysterious illness nobody can fix. I have a body that's shutting down. I'm going to die. And that terror is what got me into therapy, not because I because of my original trauma, but because I was terrified I was going to be this chronic patient or worse, I was going to die because no one was going to be able to save me. And so it was like I was just reliving my original trauma all over again from a psychological perspective. Right, right. So, um, so that's how I ended up in therapy. Wow. It's uh, <laughs> circuitous route, but but you know, all of us, I think, trauma recovery is not a straight line. That's for sure. Well, I guess the, you know, having that kind of really triggering response where your body essentially shut down and so forth essentially saved your life psychologically. Yeah. Right? It brought to light mm-hmm. this idea of trauma. Mm-hmm. And then you were able, based on that terror situation, to get the help you needed. And did did that help uh, get to the original trauma? Did it take a while to make that connection? Um, you know, that started me out on a... What ended up being, let's see, that was 1997. It, it, it took me a decade to heal, Al, a decade. Right. Because I went into talk therapy, and, that's, and I just did talk therapy for the first five years. Um, and we did some energy work. You know, I like to say I did the alphabet. I did TFT, EFT, TAT, you know, EMDR. Like, we, we did the alphabet, CBT, DBT, we did all of it. Um, and it didn't, it got me functional. It did get me back to work. It did get me like I was able to start to eat and have my body like start to settle itself down. It's like I had gotten into an activated sympathetic response that could not shut off. Um, so that, so that those five years of talk therapy, I'm not saying they were wasted. They were definitely, I think it's so important to be able to put language to it. And yes, um, at some point, probably within the first year, we got to my trauma, but like not in in any way that resolved it, not in any way that started to position the problem I was having now is <laughs> coming from the problem I've been carrying since then. Right. Um, but it did help to be able to say, you know, for the first 17 years after my trauma, I didn't speak about it at all. there was, there was just, I couldn't. And so when, when I finally started to talk about it, I was able to talk to my mom about it a little. Um, I remember a boyfriend once wanting to know, I had all these weird idiosyncrasies, one of them relating to what you said about insomnia. Um, when I came out of the hospital, I could not sleep. And the thing that drove me crazy was having to watch the clock all night. So I literally would unplug everything in my room that had a clock, the TV, <laughs> like right. the clock itself, the stereo. I would unplug everything at nighttime because I did not want to have to watch the clock. And so imagine like, you know, you're in college or you're in your 20s and, you know, you're you're spending the night with someone and the first thing you do is go and turn off all the clocks. everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember a boyfriend looking at me like, you're insane. What are you doing? <laughs> And I, and I, and I had to like say to him, okay, well, there's this thing that happened to me. And ever since then I have to turn off all the clocks. (laughs) Right. Right. 
So. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So th- this was essentially, was it after that your body shut down and you got therapy, that was really the road to your recovery, would you say then? Um, it is, but here's what happened. So, you know, you, I'm sure you probably went through some of these things yourself when, like, when you start to reclaim control and the depression starts to lift a little bit, it's such a load off that you think you're better, right? You, 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 I didn't think of myself on a continuum. I was like, oh, I'm feeling so much better. I must be done. <laughs> and so, um, so I, I said to my therapist, I'm finished. Like, look, I'm back at work. Um, I got a grant to go be an artist in residence at this place in Vermont for the summer. I'm, what was I doing? I was teaching. Uh, I'm a former university professor, so I was teaching at the time at a university in New York City. I'm like, look, I'm like, I'm good. And, um, and I wanted that to be true, so I decided it was true. And that worked for like a year until I kept breaking bones. Um, and I, and I, I mean, this is unrelated to trauma, but like, I think everything happens the way it's supposed to. So, um, one of the things that I had done at the deepest, darkest pit of my depressed despair, when I, I realized I'm not going to, I don't think psychologically I'm going to make it. I decided I, I need a puppy like the only way for me to, to decide to live is to have a puppy. And so I went and I got a puppy because there, I didn't want to live. But if there was this puppy and I could connect to an animal, because I really couldn't connect with humans very well at that point. And I thought if I can connect with this animal and I can take care of this animal and if this animal can just make me be more present every day, I think that would be good. So I got a puppy and this puppy was amazing and he saved my life and he was very strong. And one day I was walking him and, um, he lunged at a squirrel. My feet flew out from under me. I reached out to grab a railing so that I didn't fall. And I fell anyway. And, and, and I, and the two fingers on my left hand, my pinky and my ring finger, they caught the railing, but the rest of me didn't. And so those two fingers broke right off. And I ended up in the emergency room. And and the, when they finished doing all of what I did to meet with a specialist, an orthopedic surgeon, he, he looked at me and he said, there's something not right about this because the way these bones broke is not right. There's something not right about your body that you're breaking all of these bones and that they're breaking this way. And so he said, I really think you need to go to an endocrinologist and figure out, I think you might have osteoporosis. Ow. I'm like 30, 34 at the time, (laughs) too young to have osteoporosis. Um, but high cortisol leaches calcium from your bones, eating disorders, you know, really deplete your ability to build bone. So not that I knew those things at that time, but so I went to an endocrinologist on the Upper East Side at Cornell University um, Medical Pavilion, and this doctor sat me down, and he was the first one who said to me, I don't know what's going on with you. All I can tell you are these things. Number one, you have advanced osteoporosis. If you do not take care of it now in 10 years or less, your bones will start to spontaneously crumble. And he said, I'm looking at you. You are emaciated. You're not eating enough. I can't even help you until you eat. 
and he said, and I weighed about 110 pounds, five eight, and he you need to gain 15 pounds before I'll even work with you, and. But imagine, like, now you've got my attention. My bones are going to spontaneously crumble. Imagine the images that I had in my head about that. I'm going to, like, hail a cab and my arm's going to fall off. You know, like, that's not going to be good. And um, so I walked out of his office and I burst into tears. It was a freezing cold February day. And I stood at the railing of the East River and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And when all that sobbing was over... I realized I'm terrified and and it was just having that thought because sometimes Al it's the most simple thought that leads us out have you noticed that yeah definitely and I thought I'm terrified and then I thought this is nothing new I'm terrified every day and then I realized oh my god I live terrified no wonder I'm not okay and that made me hightail it back to therapy, not once a week, but twice a week, not for one hour, but two hours right. <laughs> each time. And I went back and I said to my therapist, like, this is bad. I'm constantly terrified. And and then I started working really hard and really fast. And that's when I dove into the research. And it was within like six months that I realized I need a trauma trained therapist because I'm not going to get where I need to go with this guy. And he was great for like, the beginning, but he's not going to get me to the end. And, um, and, and then I, I found a trauma trained therapist. She diagnosed me and, and that made things so much easier because I could stop blaming myself. I think it's, it's really hard. We blame ourselves for what is not our fault, but then we take that on as our identity and we label ourselves and we demean ourselves and we diminish ourselves. And that, that only takes us deeper into that depressed state. But with research and trauma informedness and understanding, suddenly we realize, okay, something's happened and maybe I know what it is and maybe I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. All that matters is where I am now and where do I want to go and how am I going to get there and what am I going to do and who is going to help because we don't have to do this alone. And those are some of the questions that I think are the most powerful to begin asking. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever happened with your bones? <gasps> the most wonderful story. And, um, and, and it was covered in uh, Ladies Home Journal, did this whole article about osteoporosis. And, and the first story that, that they told was mine. So it's a great story. What happened was um, I went back to that endocrinologist. I said, okay, you have my attention. What do I need to do? And he said, you need to eat <laughs> and, you, and, and you need to strength train and you need to take these supplements. And I, I said, done. And I hired a trainer. I had never lifted a weight in my life. I hired a trainer to teach me how to strength train. I hired a nutritionist to help me learn how to like eat to build bone. And, um, and I started taking supplements and I reversed all of it to this day. I do not have osteoporosis. I mean, yeah, I do not have osteoporosis at all. So that is amazing. It's pretty powerful what we can do. But I mean, I was militant with myself, you know, like strength training every single day. I ate what I was supposed to eat. I took the supplements. I still do all of that because we can set our minds to things and, 
and make it happen, can we not? Absolutely. You know, my first uh, thought when you mentioned the bones was auto autoimmune disorders, because it seems almost like that's what your first trauma was about, like your body attacking itself, although I know it was the antibiotic. Um, and no, you're then, 100% right, Al. You are. Keep going, because well, that's build on that. Yeah, I know that uh, once you have one autoimmune disorder, you are more susceptible to getting another one. And I happen to have half of my family has celiac, which your body doesn't digest gluten. And my wife had become very thin, and they had to check her bone density and so forth when she was finally diagnosed. Um, and she was able to just cut out the gluten to get better. And luckily, we found out about that because our one-and-a-half-year-old at the time was diagnosed with celiac. Wow. Um, so they had wow. us all tested. Well, I know a lot about celiac disease because they thought I had it and I was diagnosed with it. Um, so so I, I wholly understand where you're coming from. And I still eat gluten-free because you're right. I have autoimmune issues. The original trauma was that then I had sepsis, then I had, now I have uh, Hashimoto's. So, you know, they come in threes. <laughs> you're wow, right. The, wow. Once you've got one, you're more susceptible to the rest. Yeah. Well, so tell us, Michelle, now where all of the, the trauma you experienced, your experience with I'm sure with therapists who were not so helpful and didn't connect the dots and stuff led you on a path where now you are this trauma recovery specialist. You're an author and an, a mental health advocate. How did you decide to get into trauma recovery and supporting others? Oh, that's such a fun question because I did not decide to do this at all. This was not my plan. This was not my intention. I came out. So let's just close the gap here. Once I got my, my PTSD diagnosis, I was done with talk therapy. Even though I now had a trauma-informed therapist, I was not interested in talking about it anymore. And so I, I, I left therapy and I decided... I needed something else. What else? What else was going to help me? And I ended up, um, I decided to try hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming. And that is how I gained my freedom. These wonderful tools that work in the unconscious mind where I didn't have to keep telling my story. I could, in fact, stop telling my story and rewire the neurological embedding of my story and clean up the unconscious programming of my story and, and come out the other side to freedom. Now, when I did that, I didn't I was 40 years old and all of a sudden it was like I'd been living in black and white and suddenly the world was in technicolor but I didn't know how to live that way. I didn't have a job. I was working for my brother because I had no profession because I had just completely melted down. I had I wasn't employable during my PTSD recovery. So um I had no family. I had no relationship. I had nothing that a 40-year-old woman should have. And it occurred to me, you know, by the time I was done with my recovery, I thought, had you just told me all of this, I could have healed three decades ago. PTSD, self-test, hypnosis, NLP, talk therapy, like all this stuff. If you had just told me all this, I 
I, I didn't need to lose almost 30 years of my life to this. This was healable. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do with myself. And my brother made this offhand comment to me when I was saying to him one day, um, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and, and he said, well, you've always been a writer. Since before your trauma, you were a writer. I w- I've been a writer since I was seven. I wrote my first short story when I was seven. I wrote my first novel when I was eight. So like, it's who wow, I am. Awesome. I know, right? And my brother said to me, why don't you write about your, your PTSD recovery, but don't write about it in your journal, he said. Write online. There's this new thing. It's called a blog. <laughs> blog about it. <laughs> I was like, a blog? What is that? So I started blogging, and I'm not kidding. Within three weeks, the blog went viral because I literally was just writing about what it felt like to have PTSD and the struggle of recovery. And veterans started writing to me saying to me, how do you know exactly how I feel? And I wrote back, I don't know. I'm just writing how I feel. And then other survivors, a rape survivor wrote to me and said, you just put into words what I've been trying to say for 15 years. How did you do that? Wow. And I said, I don't know. I don't know. And it was very interesting because I felt like when I started blogging, nobody's going to understand me. My, my trauma was so bizarre. Right. And that's when I learned that we're so unique in our trauma and our recovery because there's n- every recovery is like a snowflake. What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. Yeah. Um, but in the middle, we're universal in our post-trauma experience. And so the blog went viral and people started asking me for more. So I built a website, the first civilian layperson website about PTSD. And then that website went viral. And then people... I had this huge community surrounding me and people started asking me, how do I do what you did? Can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? And I thought, no, I'm not trained. I can't help you. <laughs> so, um, so that it, it was because people kept asking me to help that I thought, okay, well, I'll just go get trained and I, I'll get trained to help. And so I did get trained in the three modalities that I felt were, were, the things that delivered me to freedom. So I'm a certified professional coach. I'm a board certified hypnotist with a specialty in PTSD and trauma. And, uh, and I'm a master practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming. And so, so I didn't intend to, Al. It's just people were asking, and I, I don't like the thought of anyone suffering. So, so I got trained, and one thing led to another, and that was – 2008 2009 and here we are in 2021 that is an incredible story uh when you went through certification for those you mentioned three different modalities um coaching hypnosis nlp the neuro-linguistic programming did you do all of those separately or did was it all a part of one program Oh, no, I did them all separately. I am a hardcore academic, so I wanted the top programs that were the most rigorous and had the most number of clinical hours and um, and training and supervision and practice and all this stuff. So, um, so I chose – IPEC, I don't know if you're familiar with the Institute of Professional Excellence in, in Coaching. They're uh, an ICF-accredited program. It was an eight- or nine-month program. It was awesome. Um, hours and hours and hours. It, they had the most 
required hours. It was like almost 400 hours of training. And so I did that. And then I trained in hypnosis with Gerald Kine, who is an international legend, one of the best hypnotists of all time. He happened to be, he's deceased now, but he happened to be in Florida, which is where I live. So, so I was fortunate to, to go just three hours from here and train with him on site. And then, um, for my NLP, I trained with Dr. Richard Bandler, who is one of the co-founders of NLP. Also very lucky because he came to Florida. Um, I did all my levels with him. So they were different programs, and I did them independently, so not all at the same time. So I could just focus on each training as I had it. Um, and so, I'm, I'm, so I feel very fortunate. In yeah, that way. well, like like you said, those sound like some very high level programs that you attended. Um, so you mentioned certification in three modalities. We just named those. Um, are there other modalities, and how many are there around trauma? Oh, Al, so many. We could talk for the next. 30 days and maybe not even cover them all. I mean, there's everything from the the conventional approach of CBT, DBT, the, those kinds of talk related behavior modification programs yeah. um, to energy psychology. I don't know if you're familiar with psych K and things like that. And, um, and then of course the unconscious processes like hypnosis and NLP and, and, and of course now we have, you know, pharmacology, right? Ketoketamines and psilocybin and MMDA and all, all the different chemicals that are being used. So there are, there are so many approaches and let's, let's think about it. It's like if, if you have, each category and all of the different options in each category, and then you can mix and match each category. The permutations for healing oh, yeah. are endless. Right, right. And so you really have to find what works for you. And it's only trial and error that helps you do that. And you said, I think you had said you chose these three because these were what helped you the most. Yeah, because I because I I went the conventional route. I did, you know, talk therapy. I did cognitive behavior therapy. I did, uh, you know, some some of the alternative energy, um, appro energetic approaches, like like, you know, we all, we're all familiar with emotional freedom technique and the precursor of that, which that which was thought field therapy and tapas acupressure technique eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is very conventionally accepted now it wasn't back when i was using it um so so i did all those and they made me more functional but they didn't set me free and i was very clear uh, in my healing intention i wanted freedom 100 percent eradication of all symptoms and I have every, you know, I have this three phase approach that I work with trauma. Phase one is control of yourself and your own experience physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Phase two is change where you have to really soothe the wound, shed the story, shift the meaning. And then phase three is identity work because you have to learn to live as who you are in this new healed space. And that's, you have to really be able to imagine who you want to be, implement a strategy, and then integrate your new self with your old self. But in that first phase of control, 
it really starts with being able to connect with your desire to heal and to be able to commit to your healing intention and then being able to concentrate your approach. And I was very clear and you know, I didn't know that I was doing all that at that time. But when I look back, I can tell you those are the things that worked because I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I needed to know and I didn't know what was going to work. But what I did was keep trying things and the things that worked I kept doing and the things that didn't work I let go and replace with something else. And so my healing intention was the thing that guided my way. Every single day I knew here's where I want to go. I want 100% freedom and nothing else will do. And so I that's that was the only thing that guided me and I just kept trying anything that I came across <laughs> until I found that combination of coaching, NLP, and hypnosis, and I was set free. Now, will that work for everybody? No, because everybody needs different things. And who knows? You know, I think healing is cumulative, Al. So like all the stuff I did that I thought at the time didn't help me, it helped me get to the point where I found the things that set me free. So I think everything that we do in recovery, you don't always know how it's helping you, but it all comes together in a mix that then you find that ultimate combination that is just opens the door to freedom. Right. That's fantastic. Can you, the, the one piece of those three modalities that was new to me is neuro-linguistic programming. And I'm wondering wondering if you could explain just kind of the basics of that one. Oh, sure. Neuro-linguistic programming. Neuro meaning the brain. Linguistic meaning language. And programming meaning how your brain processes information and what it does with it. And so NLP is a modeling program. It's based on being able to see how people who do things well, how they do it. And then breaking it down into a strategy that then other people can learn. That's where it came out of. And, you know, for, for, for those of you who know the history of psychology, people like um, Virginia Satir, and she was doing terrific therapy and getting great results. But how did she do it? She couldn't say. So Dr. Richard Bandler and John Grinder, his partner in this, would go observe her and how she worked to break down what's she doing that's getting such great results. And and then they broke it down into, oh, she's she's doing this and this and this. And then they went and observed Milton Erickson, the most incredible to this day, the best hypnotist that ever walked this face the face of this earth. He was a, a medical doctor and a psychiatrist and he used hypnosis in his practice to a great degree to help people heal without all the medical interventions. So really interesting. So NLP has this great history of being used to take successful behavior modification and break it down into how do you create that. So that's one aspect of understanding NLP as a history that's rich in, in psychology. The other side that I really love also, maybe even a little more, is the science of it. Because what NLP is really all about is your brain processes sensory information. And that's how you learn to understand your world. And 
it embeds that information in neural networks and neural pathways, billions and billions of them in your brain. And what we do then is we act on that information. But your brain is always filtering out information. The conscious mind can process about 40,000 bits of information per second. The unconscious can process 20 million bits per second. And so your, your brain literally wouldn't be able to function if it had to pay attention to everything all the time. So your brain decides, like even right now, Al, like you and I are talking and you're focused on the sound of my voice. You're using your auditory representation system. You're not kinesthetically paying attention to the feeling of the temperature of the room necessarily. You're not necessarily using your olfactory sense to sniff the air, right? I don't know. Maybe you're <laughs> drinking coffee. I can't see you. But you and I are not using our visual sense to communicate with each other. So we have all of these different representational systems and they embed information. And after trauma, we embed emotion and sensory information all together in neural networks. This is how triggers happen, right? Because then let's just say after my trauma, if I walked into a hospital, I started to feel nauseous. Just the smell of the hospital could make me break out into a sweat because what's happening is my neural networks are lighting up. Where's all the information about this smell? What do we know about this smell? And that neural network is embedded with fear, terror, pain, right? Illness. So your brain is constantly utilizing your current environment and running it through. It, it performs what's called a transderivational search. Your brain goes back into itself, lights up all the neural networks that are similar to the moment that you're in because your brain is always looking for what's familiar. That's how it understands where it is. So after trauma, all of those embedded neural networks get lodged in your mind, in your brain. And with NLP, we literally use language to activate those representational systems, mostly sound, sight, and feeling, because those are the dominant representational systems. And just by changing the pictures that your mind makes or the sounds that your mind hears related to that old trauma or changing the way that you feel that or where you feel it or how intensely you feel it in your body, just by changing those things, it changes the neural networks. And once you change a neural network, it cannot go back. So I'm giving you a very rudimentary, this is like uber simplified but basically what we do with NLP is we use language to change the brain, which means you do not have to tell your story. A lot of times I work with veterans. They don't tell me their story at all. They don't want to talk about it. Fine. I say, don't talk about it. Let's just change how you feel. And I can literally tell them, for example, just, you know, that way that you feel that, that bad way that you feel, just go ahead and let it make a picture in your mind. Now, Tell me about the picture. How close is it? How big is it? Is it black and white? Is it in color? And I start asking so that I know how their neurology is representing that memory. I still have no idea what the memory is. I'm just looking for how it's being represented. Once we start changing how it represents, it changes how you feel. Because you can do this now. Like if you were just to, um, if you were to think of, 
you've got children. If you were to think of your kids and just imagine your children in your mind and you, you, I'm just guessing, are they close to you or far away? Uh, close. Right? Because there's something that feels really good. You bring it close. But now like push them far away, push them real far away and see how the feeling changes. It's not that you love them less. That's not what I'm saying. Right. It's just just notice how it feels different to have them like push them to the other side of Minneapolis. Right. And just notice how differently it feels than when they're right close in front of you. Yeah. What do you notice? Uh, I I definitely had some feeling in my gut. Yeah. Like I wouldn't say sadness. But a little bit, kind of like, yeah, I want to, I prefer them close. Yes, exactly, exactly. And this is just a simple little way to describe it. Now, you know, we could do the flip side. Think of the worst thing that ever happened to you. Like, whatever triggered your depression, for example. Just think of it. Notice how you feel it in your body. Notice the picture that it makes in your mind. Now, drain all the color out of it. Shrink it down by 50%. Swing it around behind you. And push it to, you know, to the Pacific Ocean and see how different you feel. Right. So what we're literally doing, what do you notice? Creating a, a new image or, or getting rid of an image that brings up a bad sensation. Well, and this is just a tiny little part because I would never leave you there <laughs> right. if we were actually doing something therapeutic. This is just to sort of give you and the audience an idea of how we can start playing with the mind and we're content free, right? Right, right I'm not right. asking you to tell me your story. Just asking you get that feeling, yeah. let it make an image, and now let's 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 go because yeah. – with those two things, we can start changing the neural pathways. Right. And once you change a neural pathway, it is changed. It cannot go back to the way it was before. Yeah. So it's interesting. And, yeah. and I find very freeing as a way to work because we don't get stuck in the story, which just lights up all the neural pathways of that story. And neural pathways are like any other muscle. The more you use them, the stronger they get, the faster they work. So the last thing you want to do in trauma recovery, from my perspective, is tell your story over and over. I think there's value in learning to tell it, but in my office and on my website, my website very clearly says, stop talking about the past, start healing the present. Right. And when you get into my office, you get one shot at telling your story, and that is all. After that, we're not talking about it again. So you, I was going to ask, actually, if somebody is to work with you, what might they expect in the beginning? So it sounds like you, they may share the story to begin. Absolutely. You can tell me the story once. If there's any detail that you forgot, you can add it later. But we will not be going over your story except right. for that one time. And, and frankly, if you don't want to tell the story, I don't need to know. I'm working with a woman right now in, um, in Australia. I have no clue what happened to her. She does not want to talk about it. I have, a, I have my suspicions based on things that she said. I, ha I can guess with pretty accurate likelihood at this point. But she has never once told her story because she simply does not want to tell it. 
that's fine with me because she's feeling better and better and better. So why should we have to keep getting stuck in our story as if it defines us when the fact is it's just a story and there is no story that we tell over and over every day. So why would we tell this one over and over every day? Right. It, it doesn't psychologically make sense. And I know neurologically, scientifically, it's the worst thing we could possibly do. Yeah. But but let me say that I do feel all healing begins by being able to tell your story. I think it's therapeutic to put language to your experience. I just think it has its time and its place, and then that needs to stop. Well, I'm curious, too, of your thoughts about EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, only because I did have a guest on who spoke about EMDR, and I do know like several people who have been through EMDR to work through their own trauma that made it sound phenomenal. And, you know, there, it seems like the reason I thought of this too, was because you were able to walk us through your trauma and to talk about it. But before you did any of your healing, you probably wouldn't, didn't want to talk about it and couldn't talk about it without you know, crumbling and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But um, that is a piece that I've heard about people who have been through EMDR. They say, I, I would have never been able to speak about this trauma and now I can speak about it. Well, I think uh, there for every for every modality, there are going to be people who love it and get great benefit and people who don't love it and right. don't get great benefit. Um, you know, I used EMDR in, in my recovery. Um, I did three sessions. I was markedly worse after each session. And at that point I pulled the plug because, um, I didn't know then, but I did see research later that 50% of the people have a great experience and 50% it, it has, it, it's, it, yeah, it right. is very re-traumatizing, yeah. frankly. Um, that having been said, I, I interviewed Dr. Francine Shapiro on my podcast and the way she describes EMDR just sounds so amazing and wonderful. So I think for some people, it really can be such a great thing. I personally don't know anybody who's had that experience yeah. and that certain what certainly wasn't my experience. Well, and but, I think, I think there's also an aspect of a, a high quality therapist Yes. Right. Who's able to do that work in a way that is not re-traumatizing and just like any profession. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I'm in education. There are some awful teachers. There are some phenomenal teachers and same with any profession. Right. And I would imagine that somebody who's doing such sensitive work, EMDR, I, I know I would want to research that therapist if I was going to do something to talk about a past trauma. Um, Definitely. But I your agree. work sounds phenomenal. It sounds amazing. Can you share with us uh, so the listeners know if they want to learn more about you and how they can work with you, what's the best way? Oh, yeah. Just hop on over to mytraumacoach.com. You can – I have a free audio and MP3 for brain training. It's, um, it's a great 20-minute practice. It trains your brain for peace and calm. Uh, I Hands down, every single one of my clients uses it. They, it helps them sleep. It helps them downregulate their, their sympathetic nervous system. So you're welcome to to hop on there and download that. Um, my books are there. I have three, and uh, and and how I work is there. A, a full description of the 
the the three phase nine step process that I use to approach trauma recovery is there. And and then from there, if you just want to know more, you can follow me on any social platform or reach out to me directly. And they can reach out directly to you on the website? Absolutely. Okay. And again, it was mytraumacoach.com. That's right. Okay, awesome. I'll make sure that's in the notes as well. You are an incredible wealth of knowledge. And uh, Mm. before we uh, break, Michelle, I want to ask you, um, I ask every guest on the show for uh, the most, an important piece of advice that you would give a listener who's listening who may right now be thinking about you know, in this case, maybe a past trauma they've had that they've just kind of buried or they're going through a real struggle with their own situation, what piece of advice would you give them? Other than reaching out to your website, which I think would be phenomenal. <laughs> Any <laughs> other, uh, another piece of advice? Um, I think my favorite piece of advice would be to connect with your desire to feel better. Because if you can connect with that desire and fan that flame, if you can expand that feeling, it will be the thing that allows you to to stay afloat, frankly. Because I think we get so disconnected from ourselves in that traumatized state that the first step to healing is reconnection and reconnection happens on many levels. But, but the very first level is to get in touch with that desire to feel better because just honoring that desire can be the thing that gets you into motion. It can be the thing that makes you do a little research or the thing that makes you try something new or the thing that makes you reach out to someone. So I would say get really in touch with that desire to feel better because it can lead you forward even when you don't think you can go another inch. So, so that would be my, my recommendation. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I mean, that's just like the beginning. There's so much (laughs) that I would recommend. So if you, anybody wants to know more about my recommendations, just feel free to hit me up on any, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram. And there's a, there's a form on my website. Please just feel free to reach out that the most important thing to remember is you have enormous healing potential. The goal is learning to access it. And from my perspective, you can do this. You just have to dig deep. I believe in you and you and you, every one of us, we have it in there. You just have to figure out how to activate it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm going to make sure I have mytraumacoach.com as well as your in, all of your social media links on uh, the description of the episode. And Michelle, I want to thank you so much. First of all, thank you for the incredible work you're putting out there. I am sure you're saving lives and helping people re- uh, imagine themselves in such a positive way mm. and to work through recovery of trauma because like you said it can be done and uh, it's incredible work I really thank you for that and I want to also thank you for all of the time uh, you spent uh, on the depression files it's been fantastic Al thank you thank you for what you're doing thank you for bringing focus 
to these kind of personal conversations so that we all feel less alone and everybody knows you're you're not crazy you're just traumatized you know you're not crazy you're just depressed yeah. and, and and i think that that sense of community is so important so i thank you for that and and for the time that you've spent with me i i so appreciate and i appreciate you double for pronouncing my name properly and i don't know how you knew to do that yeah, I'm very I, impressed. Well, all right. I, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not sure. I think maybe it was the one L that, uh, that had me thinking it was Michelle. I happen to know and work. I used to work with a Michelle and, and I think I saw it on your website maybe. Well, you're amazing because everybody else uh, just defaults to the Michelle. And while I don't mind that and I'm fine with it, my parents would really appreciate knowing you pronounced it properly. <laughs> so thank you so much. All and, right. Uh, well, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, make sure you stay healthy. You as well. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression or any other mental illness and would like to be interviewed for the show, or if you'd simply like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin 18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. 